Welcome to the Theology Mom Podcast, hosted by theologian Krista Bontrager. Each week, Krista provides practical teaching to help everyday Christians gain a deeper understanding of their faith. And now, here's Krista. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are watching me around the world. Welcome to this special edition of the Theology Mom podcast. I am Krista Bontrager. I'm a Christian theologian and public apologist, and this is the channel where I offer teaching about the Bible and theological commentary on social issues. Today I'm bringing you part two of my discussion with my friend Callie Mitchell. Callie is a Gentile who married a Messianic Jew, and they are Israeli citizens who live in Jerusalem. Now, in part one of our discussion that I released a couple days ago, Callie shared about her family's personal experience living through the events of October 7th, as well as some thoughts about how we can pray for those in Israel and Palestine. Today, I am going to share the second half of our discussion. You're going to hear me ask Callie some questions related to the historical and cultural context about what's currently happening in the state of Israel, as well as the origins of Hamas. Now, neither of us claims to be an expert on the politics of Hamas or Israel, but Callie has studied these issues in a university context as well as learning from her own experience as an American as and as a citizen of Israel for over a decade. So I think she offers a bit of a unique perspective as someone embedded in the community there. But before I play the interview, I want to make a few additional comments to give some context to what you're going to hear. Since the events on October 7th, I have been working very diligently even in the middle of a very crazy travel schedule, to learn more about the history and context behind the conflict in the Middle East. Now, I'm going to be just very transparent. It's honestly not an issue that I have taken a lot of time to learn about prior to the October 7th massacre. Since then, I've been watching quite a lot of content on both sides of the issues, uh, trying to understand both sides of the discussion and find the truth. Now, my honest feeling after watching about 50 hours of this content, including a lot of very strong post-Palestinian side of the discussion, uh, my honest opinion is that the pro-Palestinian side needs better spokespeople. It's often just a bunch of screaming and name-calling, and honestly, if I wasn't, so motivated to bring you fair and balanced content, I would have given up by now, just even trying to figure out their best arguments. That said, I do think I am finally starting to get a grip on the historical roots and context of the current situation. And I am considering putting together teaching about what I've learned on the history, but it probably won't be for a few more weeks if I even have time to do it. So we'll just see how that kind of plays out. But the bottom line of all of the research that I've done up until now, including the discussion you're about to hear with my friend Callie, is that the whole controversy 
about the state of Israel and the Middle East and everything that's going on there, all of that rests on how you answer one single question. And that is this. Does the state of Israel have a right to exist? If you answer yes, the state of Israel has a right to exist, then a whole bunch of other beliefs follow from that. It has the right to defend itself. It has the right to determine who can be a citizen. It has a right to determine how it will order its army. You know, the normal things that every other country gets to decide for themselves all the time. And this is the perspective that you're going to hear Callie coming from in our discussion today. She is focusing on the reality that the state of Israel, as it currently exists, and then she is addressing my questions from the conclusion or, or following the conclusion that the state of Israel has the right to defend itself. She also holds a personal belief that Israel is the ancestral home of the Jews given to them by God and that that promise is un, an unbreakable promise from God. Now, if you answer the question, no, the state of Israel does not have the right to exist, then a whole bunch of other beliefs follow from that perspective. This is the pro-Palestinian side of the conversation. Now, they, they're more um, fair and uh, measured spokespeople and surrogates. They will point to events in the years immediately following World War II, where many non-Jewish residents were forced out of their homes and into refugee camps, many of whom still live in those refugee camps or subsequent generations live in those refugee camps, two generations removed from the original events of the late 1940s. Now, people on this side of the discussion see the citizens of Israel as occupiers who stole the land from the residents several decades ago. Now, what Callie presents is one side of the discussion. She's presenting the Israeli side. And this is important data to consider in light of the current reality that Israel is a nation that was basically set up by the UN in the late 1940s. While we can certainly have the debate about whether the events leading up to the establishment of Israel as a nation were ethical, and personally, I think that's a world worthwhile discussion, at the end of the day, Israel is, present tense, a sovereign state. And as far as I can tell, they're not going anywhere. So the rest of the world needs to somehow live in that reality. From that place, Israel is a nation and it has the right to defend itself. But here is what's also clear. There are a lot of people around the world who would not shed a tear if Israel were cleared of every Jew from the river to the sea. Apparently, the more barbarous the method, the better. Our social media feeds are being filled 
with scene after scene of anti-Israel outrage, gross Jew hate, the depravity of the events on October the 7th by Hamas disgusted the civilized world. Even most mainstream liberals these past few weeks have expressed deep concern for what they are seeing in their social media feeds. But what October 7th has really revealed is that the rot in academia and among the indoctrinated children of the U.S. education system is so deep that a significant number of Americans would prefer to close their eyes and refuse to deal with the realities that have been exposed by Hamas, the deeds of Hamas. And this is the frustration and emotion that you will hear in my conversation with Callie. She loves her country. She's deeply American, and she's also a citizen of Israel. And she is deeply concerned by the calls from around the world to kill Jews and the idea that the state of Israel has no right to exist. And with that, here's part two of my discussion with Callie Mitchell. Now, over here, what we're hearing is a lot of messaging. The gist of it is that the Jews kind of deserved it. The Israelis deserved what happened on October 7th because they've been keeping all of the people in Gaza in an open-air prison. And so the resistance from the open air prison is to they were they were trying to break out and get their freedom. This this is the narrative that we keep hearing over here. I don't know enough about the, you know, the inside workings of of how all of that came about. But when you I mean when you look at it, well okay, there's a a lot of barbed wire happening here. That does on the surface look like an open air prison. Um, I know that you have some different thoughts about that. So maybe just share with us um, your perspective on that narrative. Even the UN Secretary General had just recently came out and said that what Hamas did on the Sinkat Torah massacre didn't happen in a vacuum. And we're all shocked and appalled over here that he would um, pretend to contextualize it in that way. Like the moral equivalency that's happened surrounding this has just been horrifying to us over here. I mean, yeah, Israel's the one that built the walls, but if you had a terrorist organization living in that close proximity to your civilians... Um, Who actively wants to destroy you. Yes, and had that in their documentation that that was their goal, to destroy and annihilate the nation of Israel, would you not put a barbed wire fence around them? Initially, that fence wasn't there, and it was erected because of security issues. As they began to gain more power and become more aggressive, that's when it was put up. Israel, of course, shares a border on the west side of Gaza and the north side of Gaza, and then Israel controls the access that they have to the Mediterranean Sea. But Egypt also shares a border with Gaza, and they have also blockaded Gaza. So that's the thing that you don't often hear about is the Egyptian blockade. So this fence that's put up, it wasn't specifically 
to imprison people. It was sounds like it was more of a defensive measure to keep Israeli citizens and Egyptian citizens safe. And they're saying, we're going to just like I would put up a fence around my yard. I'm not trying to block to to imprison my neighbor with my fence. Rather, I'm trying to build a fence to protect me and my family. So even the 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 rhetoric of open air prison makes it sound like Israel put them in there and then built up this wall to keep them contained in there. That's that's not doesn't seem to be exactly what the state of things is. And Bethlehem similar. We get a lot of pushback from the wall around Bethlehem, but that wall went up around Bethlehem after the Intifada and it cut back. Um, it might have been after the second intifada, but it cut back suicide bombers by 99.999%. So it was really effective in what it was established to do, which was to keep the Israeli people safe. And that's exactly what that fence around Gaza was established to do, was to keep the civilians in Israel safe. Now, I will acknowledge that the blockade probably did um, contribute to their weakened economy, but I think Israel's first priority is to its own citizens' protection. It's not to the economy of Gaza. Okay, we've had recently, we've had a program to um, give work permits for 20,000 Gazans to go into Israel and work so they can have a higher wage and have better employment opportunity. And with this massacre, one of the things that we've learned is that they use that visa program to actually go in and take take information about the kibbutzim in the south, the villages in the south that they massacred. They had really detailed mapping of these places. Um, They had drawings. They had information about like how many family members lived in certain houses and who had a dog. And that was all obtained because they had this visa program where they could exit. Um, So they've exploited all of the aid that Israel has given. Um, they, They build terror tunnels underneath Gaza. And we have documented images of the tunnels being built with concrete that Israel sent in for infrastructure development um, in this past and just recently when we had this massacre we have photo documentation of even um, first aid kits that were given to them by UNICEF in the trucks that the terrorists drove through the border fence um, basically all the aid that goes into Gaza goes to support Hamas and to build that terror network underneath it doesn't go to support the civilians and so because of that, I think their conditions are because of who they have governing them, not because of anything that Israel has done. Well, I think it's a, it's a hard thing for people in the West to understand and to believe that because we are such a, uh, we want to see ourselves as such a giving people, such a compassionate people and sending all this aid. Our government is promising more aid, even though people like um the guy who wrote the Son of Hamas book, uh, who is now a Christian, he's been now on the media circuit saying, please don't send them aid. It's yes. not going to get to the regular people. Okay. Hamas just steals the aid. It's hard for us to think about in, uh, in for coming from a compassionate place. Well, what about the innocent people living in Gaza? Not everybody in Gaza is a member of Hamas. You know, there's there's elderly people and children and women and and it's hard for us to think about them 
that that Israel has cut them off from water and electricity and about the water and electricity that situation um a few days ago when they did the siege and they cut the water and electricity it was also strategic they cut it and then they turned it back on in the south because they were going to start striking targets in the north and even potentially doing ground invasion work which they they're kind of doing the last few days um in the north and they were trying to motivate the civilians in Gaza to go down to the south can you confirm, is it true that the Israeli army, that the IDF warns people before they're going to strike? Yeah, I do. I feel very confident about it because I've seen documentation of this happening. They will drop flyers from the sky that are in Arabic. They will put it on everybody's phone in a message in Arabic, on radio. You know, they do what they can to inform the civilians of when they're going to strike because Gaza doesn't have a siren system the way we do, which would be the responsibility of Hamas to put in place. Um, but yeah, Israel does go be above and beyond. The IDF is the most scrutinized military in the world, and they they go above and beyond what's required of them by international law. So it does make it a little bit frustrating for us over here, especially sure. if everybody's served. I mean, my husband served in the IDF, you know, like everyone serves, so everyone knows what their ethics codes are. And what my, my understanding is, is that oftentimes Hamas prevents them from going. But what's also challenging about it is that Hamas will actually pick human, humanitarian sites to be where they do their business. Um, in 2014, they were launching, I was here for that conflict. They were, you know, I've been here since 2009. So they were launching um, rockets from uh, um, UNRWA school. Um, so it was a UN school and they had their rocket launcher there at the school. And so Israel took a lot of heat for striking that site because it was a school. But under international law, once it starts being used for terrorism, it has a different category, you know, as long as they're able to do what they can to evacuate the civilians. But the thing is, is that Israel, there's always going to be civilian losses in war. That right. is the dark, disastrous side of war. That is the evil of war, is that there's always going to be civilian casualties. Israel does not target civilians. And that's what I think makes the moral equivalency that happened with the attack that we faced on Sinkat Torah um, just absolutely absurd because they were explicitly targeting civilians. Um, right. If a civilian dies from an Israeli attack, we grieve that here. We are not happy about that taking place. Um, they do everything they can to avoid that. Um, it's a den Gaza's densely populated urban warfare, so it's going to be nearly impossible to avoid. But Hamas, they target civilians, target them. Like, that is their goal. And they even hit a hospital here in Ashkelon just recently, and no one, you know, it was like the media was just crickets on that. They hit a maternity ward, and it was crickets. That's a war crime. The fact that they have... 226 civilians being held hostage in those underground tunnels that's a war crime <laughs> that is a war crime no one wants to focus on their war crimes everyone wants right. to make israel into the bad guy and i think that so much of the conversation really rests on if a person has a starting point of believing israel has a genocidal intention toward the palestinians which is the strong narrative in what we're seeing over here, then a whole other lot of beliefs follow from that. And so then the regular person 
is left to try to adjudicate who's telling the truth. What's true. What's true and what's really happening. So that's kind of the nature of some of the questions I'm asking you and some of the questions I've been talking to Kevin about. It's like, I'm just a regular person. How do I, how do I adjudicate what's happening? And, And along those lines, let me ask you about another thing, because I don't know if you saw this, but a day or two ago, as we're recording this, there was a protest of students at NYU. And one of the things that the mob was chanting was from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And we're hearing this chant quite a lot here. And I'm wondering if you can help us make sense of what this means, because we as Americans, we love the word freedom. Yes, I want to be for freedom. So I want to be on the Palestinian side. I want them to be free. But what what is the meaning behind this phrase? Okay, so yeah, this is actually an incitement to genocide. Against the Jews. Against the Jews. Yeah, this is an incitement to genocide from the Palestinian, the pro-Palestinian movement against the Jews. The river that they're talking about here is the Jordan River. That is the western border of Israel between Israel and Jordan. Um, The sea is the Mediterranean Sea. So from the river to the sea, they want to set Palestine free from all of Israel. This isn't a cry for a two-state solution. This is, let's, we're going to get rid of you from the river to the sea. Like this whole, we're going to, just this entire scope of territory, we're going to get rid of you. So we're going to get rid of all the Jews from the river to the sea. That's, that is what is behind the saying. Yeah. But furthermore, though, this, this um, chant, it has an anti-Semitic history. I pulled two quotes for you all about this. Um, so in 1948, Sheikh Hassan al-Banna, who's the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, he was quoted as saying, if the Jewish state becomes a fact, and this is realized by the Arab people, they will drive the Jews who live in their midst to the sea. And then another one in 1966, Syrian leader Hafez al-Assad, he said, we shall only accept war and the restoration of the usurped land to oust you out aggressors and to throw you into the sea for good. So when all these pro-Palestinian groups are going around chanting this, they're being allowed to just freely express hate speech. That's really threatening to their Jewish neighbors here. And it's hate speech in the truest sense. It's not this kind of woke, you know, you don't like me, you're not affirming me, so therefore it's hate speech. This is actual actual hate speech yeah. that is not- calling people to violence. Yeah. And I feel uncomfortable with that, or that hurts my feelings, or right. I feel But there's an anti-Semitic history to this, and when you look at the full scope of the context of what they're saying, what they're saying is that they want to throw the Jews into the sea. And obviously, so much of this revolves around who has a right to the land. Now, the Jewish people would say, look, this is the land of our ancestors. We are the original... The original people of the land um, as the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And 
this was the land that was promised to us. Now, the narrative that we hear is, no, this land belonged to the Palestinians and Israel is the occupiers. They came in and threw out the the Palestinians, you know, 70 years ago or so. Um, And then there's all this conversation about the two-state solution. I don't know if you want to lend any insight into the whole two-state solution issue. All the two-state solution plans that have come up in the last few decades have included removing all the Jews from the West Bank. Um, so they would be they would be creating a Jew-free Palestine next to Israel. Um, but that plan isn't mutual in that in Israel, we're happy to keep our um, Arab-Israeli citizens. Um, we're happy to have them with us. Um, there's no plan... <laughs> to kick out our Arab neighbors from Israel. We are happy to have integrated them. Um, and you have you have even have Arabs in your government, from what I understand. Yeah, we do. Yeah. We have an, we have Arabs in the opposition party currently. Back when Naftali Bennett was prime minister, we had Arabs in the coalition. We have an Arab on the Supreme Court. So there's an ethos in Israel of coexistence, co-laboring and yeah. you know, peaceful neighbors and we're going to work together, live together and all of that, even if we we might be religiously different or politically different, we're going to live together. It seems like the issue of the Palestinians, the question is, is there a desire on their part to peacefully coexist? It seems like that's the big question kind of hanging in the air. Yeah, and I I can't speak for the Israeli Arab experience because um, I'm you know being a Gentile here I'll tell you it's not always easy you know sometimes I feel very different and so I'm not going to say that it's super easy for them but these ideas that it's apartheid state and whatnot are just not relevant. Listen, there have been six times in history where we could have had a Palestinian state, and all six times Israel agreed to the Palestinian state. The Palestinian leadership did not agree to it. They're the ones that declined the offer. And they're actually the only people group in world history who has had international backing to form a nation state and has declined the opportunity. But those six times were the 1937 Peel Commission, the 1947 UN Partition Plan, the 1967 um, Khartoum Plan, um, 2000 at Camp David, 2001 at Taba. And 2000, the 2006 Omer plan. Um, sometimes people debate a little bit about the Peel Commission because they weren't defined as a people yet. Like they were looking at an Arab state and a Jewish state. Like there was no language of Palestine, but still they declined. So six times over, they could have had a state. And the reason that they declined is because they don't want to live side by side with the Jewish people. They don't want a two state solution. And I don't think that we're going to get anywhere as long as the Western world is trying to impose this utopian vision onto the situation without hearing what they're saying. Well, I think there's a big assumption here in the West that the Palestinians want to live peacefully with the Jews. They just want their own place. They just want their own land. And then all of these problems will be solved. The problem is Israel won't give the Palestine their own land. In terms of individuals, you might find individuals who want that. Um, I know some some, um, Palestinian Christians who want that. 
Um, I'm specifically talking about the actions of the government that they've elected. Right. Sure. Right. I want to clarify that for your audience. I'm not saying if you have a Palestinian friend who's like, yeah, I want two states and I want it to be peaceful. Awesome. But that's not what their government has been doing. Right. Well, we hear over here some of the more I would put this under the banner of anti-Semitic kinds of rhetoric that we hear is that the Zionists is really just they're the ones that actually developed Hamas and the Zionists are are really the problem. In fact, some of them are just out there. They're just Luciferian demon worshiping people. It's all very confusing. The messaging that we get out here about the term Zionism. I don't know if there's anything that you can comment or lend any clarity to those kinds of more nefarious rumors. Yeah, no, I mean, Zionism is not a bad word at all, (laughs) but it's really just like Jewish self-determinism and we're all about Palestinian self-determinism, right? So Zionism is Jewish self-determinism. There's nothing wrong with it. And Zionism, I mean, Zionist, Zion, it comes up in God's word all the time, you know? Um, I'm strongly of the opinion that God's word is clear that the land is belongs to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like, I think it's clear through the whole of scripture and affirmed in Romans 11, 27 and 28, where it says, you know, for the sake of the gospel, they're enemies on your account, but for the sake of the patriarchs, they are loved and the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So that covenant is established through the whole of scripture and affirmed in the new Testament. Um, so I think what ends up happening here, are you familiar with horseshoe theory? No. <laughs> I think this explains it. Okay, horseshoe theory is a political science theory that instead of the left and right poles moving in opposite directions, they're actually bending towards each other like a horseshoe so that the extreme right and the extreme left start to look more alike than similar, like fascism starts to look more like communism than different. And what I've discovered in my studies on anti-Semitism, I took a course when I was in grad school. It was a graduate level course on anti-Semitism in the Judaic studies program. Um, it was probably the best course I've ever taken. <laughs> um, but just looking at that, what I see is that anti-Semitism emerges from both the the woke radical left and the far radical right, like alt-right, like both will converge at a point of anti-Semitism. Yes, That's definitely what what I'm what I'm noticing is yeah. that it's the people on the far right, you know, that would be kind of the anti woke crowd for a shorthand way of saying it, that are really getting mixed up in a lot of very peculiar, yes, anti Jewish, um, conspiracy theories. As believers, a lot of times we're so used to pushing it back, pushing back against the woke left. But sometimes we can go too far to the right. Yeah. And in Joshua 1, um, the command of the Lord to Joshua was, um, do not do not add or subtract from my word from the right to the or the left, or do not stray from my word from the right to the left. I'm sorry, I'm not quoting it exactly right. But, you know, he tells Joshua to not add to the law, you know, in either direction. And so I think we have to be cautious as believers to not get so um, disillusioned by the woke left that we're moving mm-hmm way too far to the right because it does start to do that horseshoe thing and it always 
converges at anti-Semitism always. Monique's been really speaking quite a lot on the connection between what we're seeing here of the pro-Palestine movement and um, the critical social theories and how this is connected to critical Muslim theory. And she's been doing, you know, we did a whole live stream about it a couple of weeks ago, and I know she has more content planned um, that it's really just kind of all in the same stream. But I appreciate you speaking to the to the right side of the of the issue as well. Mm -hmm. So we've had Kevin Briggins on a couple of live streams and he has a background. He has a degree in Middle Eastern studies and he's really lended some help in helping us understand some things about the history of Israel and Hamas. And I would love to have you weigh in on that issue as well of, you know, does Hamas, where do they come from? Do, do they represent the Palestinian people? Um, I hear conflicting things that they were elected. And then I hear that, no, it was a coup that they took over. I, I'm just confused. I would say to that, they were elected. And I think to say it was a coup isn't maybe exactly accurate, but kind of. To really understand Hamas, we actually have to go back to the Muslim Brotherhood first. And that's because the Muslim Muslim Brotherhood was the very first ever terrorist organization. They were, they were the foundational terrorist organization for all terror organizations that we have today. Everything today factioned off of them, whether it's Hamas or um, Islamic Palestinian Jihad, which is also in Gaza, um, Hezbollah, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, like they all factioned off of Muslim Brotherhood. So that is the starting point. So what we have here with the Muslim Brotherhood is that um, they started in um, 1928 under the leadership of a man named Hassan Albana. Okay, so he was um, uh, he was a isn't he was a Muslim and he was also a political activist and he drew these concepts together, which wasn't hard because Muhammad, who developed Islam, was actually quite a statesman himself. So Islam has a lot of political theory built into their theology. Albana, though, one of the things about him that's really important to understand is that he was a huge fan of Hitler. Um, he was a Hitler follower, and he took Mein Kampf, and he had it translated into Arabic so that um, the Arab-speaking world could read Mein Kampf. And he also, from what I'm understanding, he had um, he brought in um, propaganda experts from um, the Nazis from Joseph Goebbels ministry. He had them come in and teach them um, Nazi style propaganda. Uh, so then meanwhile, we had another leader that was part of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, he's the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. His name was Haj Amin al-Husseini. And al-Husseini was also, you know, he's the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. So he was the leader of the Arab people in British Mandate Palestine. Um, and during the Ottoman rule, um, he was the leader here and he was the main imam for the Muslims in Jerusalem and for this region. He was also a major follower of Hitler. And so when the British exiled him from Jerusalem, he sought asylum in Hitler's Berlin. And while he was there, he um, started a radio program in Arabic so that he could pr promote uh, Nazi ideals and also his own radical teachings on um, Islam. He was the founder of radical Islam. 
And he uh, is the one that really developed the Islamic theology of anti-Semitism from those passages in the Quran. So he used that Nazi platform to promote um, both Nazi propaganda, Nazi anti-Semitism, along with what was what was organic to Islam. Um, so the founders of that movement were really Nazis in a sense. Like they weren't just radical Muslims, but they were Nazis. Uh, so then 60 years later, we had the Intifada in Israel. Um, the Muslim Brotherhood started Hamas as the military wing um, for their organization here in Israel during the Intifada. And they were based in Gaza. Uh, so we're talking about what year is, is, is this? 1988, 1987. Okay. Okay. In 88. Yeah. So in 88, Hamas, they published uh, what's called the Hamas Charter or the Hamas Covenant. And that details their objectives and how their organization is to be run, um, what their goals are. And it's actually considered to be one of the most anti-Semitic documents in history. Um, it echoes the teachings of Husseini, um, just his radical, um, eschatological desire to see all the Jews murdered and killed. Um, you know, it echoes these ideals. And, you know, basically their whole reason for being is to see the Jewish people annihilated. So that would be like the whole foundation of Hamas is this Nazi, radical Islam, propaganda-centered um, military wing of the Muslim Brotherhood that it was here in Gaza, here in Israel, in Gaza, to destroy the Jewish people. After the war for independence, Egypt took Gaza. And um, during the Six-Day War, Israel was able to reclaim that territory from Egypt. The Six-Day War, that was the one in the 1960s. Yeah. yeah, okay. So Israel reclaimed that territory. And we had established a settlement called Gush Katif. And um, people loved it. They were so happy there. It was very fertile, you know, great farmland on the coast, very happy people. Um, and then through, you know, like just peace negotiations and a lot of, you know, violent activity because they were living in close proximity to a lot of Arab Palestinians, they um, entered into this peace agreement to disengage uh, under Ariel Sharon. They disengaged from Gush Katif and all of Gaza in 2005. Um, it was extremely controversial here in Israel. So they pulled 8,000 people out of Gaza, 8,000 Jewish Israelis out of Gaza and completely disengaged. So in 2006, the Gazans elected Hamas as their government. They beat out Fatah. And Fatah was the party that was um, responsible for the Palestinian Authority. So that's like Mahmoud Abbas. His party is Fatah. Um, so they beat out Mahmoud Abbas's party in the Gaza Strip. Um, a year later, and this is where I say they were both elected and it kind of was a coup. Um, not exactly a coup, but kind of like, so a year after they were elected, they had basically turned over all of the Fatah representation in Gaza. Um, so they were like the sole governing body in, in Gaza. So this is about 2006 is yeah. what you're describing when the, the Jews completely withdrew from Gaza, turned it over to the to the Palestinians. And then there was an election, but then eventually it sounds like power was just kind of turned over to Hamas. 
at that point? Yeah, like they took it. Um, okay. When it turned over to them, I would say they took it. But they, they did have overwhelming support in that election. Um, history shows that they had 75% of the vote. Um, so they had overwhelming support at the time. And they have not had an election since. Um, but also Fatah has not had a... Palestinian Authority has not had an election since either. And the reason for that, by some theories, is because... Um, actually, among the Palestinian people, there was a poll in 2021 that showed that 53% of Palestinians overall preferred Hamas to Fatah. So, okay. you know, risk losing election if they have an election there. Um, but during that time, you know, since 2006-2007, uh, Hamas has just continued to gain power and grow um, as an Iranian proxy. So they get all of their funding from Iran. They get their weapons supply from Iran. Um, Palestinian Islamic Jihad that's also in Gaza is also funded by Iran. Um, they don't have political ambitions, though. They just exist to be a terrorist organization. Um, also Hezbollah in the north. They also are funded by Iran and Iranian proxy. Um, so what we see when we when Israel's dealing with Hamas and Hezbollah um, it's really just the tip of an iceberg of a giant um, terror infrastructure that's supported and propped up by Iran. Um, Would you say though that it's fair to say that, I mean, because this Nazi connection, this is new for me, is part of the agenda here then from the Muslim Brotherhood and its kind of antecedents and descendants is part of the agenda to specifically wipe out the Jews? Is that what I am to infer from what you're saying? 100%. Yeah. That is their agenda. Yeah. Al-Husseini, part of his teaching was that the evil of Zionism was that the Jews were going to come back and take Al-Aqsa Mosque and rebuild their temple. And that goes against Islamic theology because their theology says that before the, you know, at the end of the age that they're going to defeat the Jews. So this completely shook up their worldview that the Jewish people were here. Um, but yeah, it's totally, and I wanted to just say too about the Nazi connection. Um, when I was a student years ago, <laughs> uh, we were really not, like if anyone would connect what was happening in the Middle East to Nazi Germany, it was sort of like, no, we can't go there. We need to keep these issues separate. But when I took my course on anti-Semitism, one of the things that I realized was that the cartoons that were coming out and the anti-Semitic tropes that were coming out of the Muslim world were the same as what was what was coming out of Nazi German Germany. So they they totally like you can totally see the Nazi influence in in um, just the anti-Semitic anti-Semitism from radical Islam. It's it's completely obvious now that you know you'll you'll go back and you'll look at it and you'll be like, yeah, I see. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time to share with us. You've given us a lot to think about. You've added a lot of perspective and um, just know from from both Callie and I that, you know, our love for the Jewish people is very strong and real. And we want the gospel to go out to all the nations that God's people from among all the nations would come to know him as their Messiah, and that Jesus has come for the redemption of the world. And no matter how long the Lord tarries, and no matter what happens, 
God's people will be a remnant. So hold fast to the word of God and to the hope that Jesus is coming again. And he's working out his plan for each and every one of us and for the nations. And once again, I want to say thank you to my friend Kelly Mitchell for setting aside the time to talk to us and share her perspective as a citizen of Israel. Now, as we wrap up this discussion, you may be wondering, where is the Palestinian Christian perspective in all of this? I would welcome talking to a Christian leader who has a strong biblical worldview about the challenges of the Palestinian people, someone who hasn't been shaped by Palestinian liberation theology. If you know someone, send them my way. I have reached out to a couple of people already. I hope to find some good dialogue partners about these issues so that I can continue to learn and hopefully help you continue to learn. And I am open to eventually talking to someone to help me understand Palestinian liberation theology better, but that's not what I'm looking for at this moment right now. But I do want to leave you with a reminder about the most important thing we can do as we are in that process of learning, and that is to pray. To pray for the people of Israel, especially for those families who have lost loved ones or have loved ones who are still hostages in Gaza. Pray for their rescue. Pray for, ultimately, their spiritual salvation, that they would come to know Jesus as their Messiah. Pray also for the citizens of Gaza and the lives of innocent civilians, that they would be protected and the loss of life would be minimal. Ask for God's comfort for their suffering. Those people have suffered a lot. Pray for the IDF, the Israeli army, that they will use wisdom and restraint in their attempts to eradicate Hamas and its government. As followers of Jesus, we should care about all those who are suffering right now, regardless of whether they are Muslim, Jewish, or Christian, Palestinian or Israeli or whatever. But we must not also be careful not just to jump on board with the cultural bandwagon and cultural pressure to buy into the narrative that Israel is nothing more than white oppressors. Israel is attempting to defend its citizens from terrorist actions of Hamas and bring the guilty to justice while minimizing the loss of civilian life. That said, I'm not in any way trying to whitewash the true, real, and non-trivial concerns that Palestinian citizens may have about their current situation or the state of Israel or its historical origins. These are all important matters that need to be reasonably discussed within the context of a biblical worldview. But Hamas's actions to butcher Israeli children, burn its citizens alive, rape Israeli women, torture and execute Israeli citizens in cold blood, and take over 240 hostages, including babies and the elderly, must not be whitewashed either. Hamas's reprehensible and immoral behavior bears a remarkable resemblance, resemblance to the descriptions of ancient war practices of the nation's surrounding Israel described in Amos chapters 1 and 2. And these are actions which God's standard of justice condemns. Most importantly, 
whichever side of the issue you find yourself leaning toward, what we cannot do is allow hatred to build in our hearts for the other side. We must follow the commands of Jesus and pray for and serve our cultural enemies, bring them the gospel so that they may have the opportunity to become family. Thank you for watching. God bless you, and may God have mercy on us all. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to the Theology Mom podcast and add your review. You can also follow Krista at Theology Mom on Facebook and YouTube. Join Krista for more theology adventures on the All The Things Show, co-hosted with Monique Dusan. Thanks for listening.